Well, hello, church. Thank you again so much for gathering this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into whatever space you happen to be, if you're around your dining room table, uh, sitting outside on the, the porch in your living room. Uh, just so grateful that you've chosen to spend this morning uh, with us and for bringing the church into that, those particular spaces. And thanks as well for inviting us into those spaces uh, that you happen uh, to be. Certainly uh, long to be with you all, to meet in person, but thankful that uh, we can gather uh, in this way. And so it's my privilege it's my joy to open up God's word with you all this morning. Uh, we are wrapping up a series that we began a couple of weeks ago called Seeking After Shalom, and we're looking specifically at racism and what responsibility, both at kind of an individual level, but also at kind of corporate moral responsibility looks like, and ultimately God's vision for reconciliation. So we're exploring those topics over the last couple of weeks. We're doing that again th this morning. All right, we'll wrap up this series, not because, oh, now it's all kind of buttoned up and there's no more issues. Uh, certainly that is not the case, but we've wanted to step in and do more than just a one-off sermon, but to actually press into this for a few weeks praying that God might work in and through us as his church. And so the idea, again, if you are maybe new to Crosspoint, new to this series, is when the Hebrew scriptures, when the, uh, the Bible uses the word shalom, all right, this Hebrew word that gets translated as peace, it means more than what we typically think of it as. Uh, peace sometimes just means to us like, well, there's, they're not fighting anymore, all right? Uh, but Peace in the Bible, shalom, is about everything being like woven together, this webbing together of things. It's a flourishing, it's wholeness, it's, it's delight. It's Genesis 1 and 2. It says how God originally created things to be before sin entered and fractured things and things began to spiral out of control toward chaos. And the calling then as the church, as a group of people who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, this gospel movement that is the church, there's a call then for us, not simply to kind of kick back and be like, oh, cool, Jesus has rescued me. But there's also a collective call to be agents, to be ministers of reconciliation. So as we're reconciled to God in this vertical relationship, it should flow out horizontally that we would seek to practically, tangibly move into the places where there's injustice, where people are marginalized, people are on the underside of power, people are overlooked to do what Jesus said, to love God and to love our neighbor. And that all flows out of the peace that has been achieved by Jesus, the shalom that we've been offered through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we as a church then are called to be agents of reconciliation, uh, to seek after shalom, to be participants in God's redemptive work. And an image that I put up each week is this idea, if one thinks of this webbing together of shalom, well, it's been ripped apart, torn apart because of sin. And there's particularly painful ways that it's torn apart because of racism, because of prejudice, because of injustice. And our calling then as the church is to seek to reweave the very fabric that's been torn apart, to weave that back together. And this series is just a small offering, praying that God might use this to be part of that work. It's not the end of the story. It won't fix everything. But my hope is that we would awaken as a church, what we looked at the first week, to God's intentions for the world. We looked at even last week was a hard word to hear, but I think a needed word about our corporate moral responsibility, particularly if you're in the majority culture, and how do we actually enter in? What does repentance look like? And then this morning, uh, we're going to continue along those themes and building upon those things and really look at, okay, what, at the end of the day, like, what does the gospel have to say to this? How is racism and injustice and prejudice, how is it actually really, it's a massive gospel issue. 
Sometimes people want to separate those out, like, well, let's not do this, let's not talk about that, let's just talk about the gospel. If we're going to talk about the gospel, we have to talk about these things, and we'll see that in the text this morning. So I want to encourage you to follow along. As always, you can make use of cpwp.life, swipe over until you see a card that says message notes, and then anything that I put up on the screens this morning, the slides uh, will be there, including the text that we'll be in. And our text this morning, uh, we're going to primarily camp out in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. So I invite you to turn there right now, or again, go to the message notes at cpwp.life. And I want to go ahead and read these words out of Galatians chapter 2. There is a confrontation that takes place between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, two pillars in the early church, men that were used in tremendous ways by God, but they were not perfect men. And we're going to see in this case, one of them, who is Peter, gets called out by Paul. And not called out just in general. He gets called out because he's actually engaged in prejudiced, racist behavior. And so as, it, as I get into this, this, this text this morning, it's going to refer to Cephas, which is another name for Peter. And so that's who we're talking about, the Apostle Peter. So Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 16, it says these words. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I, this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, said this, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word for us this morning. Church, I wanna invite you. I'm gonna put a slide up on the screen here. Pray this prayer with me wherever you're at, just to, to pause, to collect your thoughts, to, to just focus and say, God, I need you to speak to me through your word this morning. You don't need to hear my thoughts or opinions. We need to hear from God and God has spoken to us through his word. And so what does this text and the other texts we are gonna look at this morning, what is it communicating to us? What does God want to say to us? So pray these words along with me that I put on the screen. Holy God, word made flesh. Let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears and penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with great anticipation. Amen. So as we get into Galatians chapter two, I need to give a little bit of backstory here because there was an important moment that led to this, all right? Because there was prior to what we have in verse 11 through 16 in Galatians two is the apostle Peter had had this awakening to God's desire. It was like he finally, the, the kind of light bulb went on, his eyes were open to, oh, 
this has been God's intentions all along that God's people, the Jewish people, might be a blessing to all the nations. Now, he would have known that. He would have grown up hearing the story of Abraham. He would have known Genesis chapter 12 where, where God brings this man named Abraham and says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, but not just to exist for yourselves. I'm gonna make you into a blessing and it'll be a blessing for all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the peoples. That's always been God's heart and design. And so when God picked a group of people, it was so that mission would happen, not so that it would just stay with them. And so time goes by, generations go by, hundreds of years, thousands of years go by. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is there's a group of people as the Jewish people that think God's promises are just for them. They forget this bigger story that they're part of. And so what we need to do here for a moment is see how the apostle Peter came to have his eyes sort of opened again, opened afresh, to God's plan, what God's plan has been all along. And there's this great encounter that the apostle Peter has. So if you flip over, again, you can do this on the message notes as well. Go to Acts chapter 10. I wanna just read this narrative account here. We see God's plan. We see how God is at work in the world and what he does specifically for Peter, all right? So I'm just gonna read this, make a couple comments along the way, but we need to understand this before we can dive into Galatians chapter two. Picking up in verse one, Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So right away, we know this is a non-Jewish man. This is a Gentile. Not only that, he's a centurion. He's part of the opposition, all right? He's part of the oppressor that is Rome, all right? A devout man, though, who feared God with all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people, it tells us, all right? And he prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa, all right? So that's what's been going on for Cornelius. These men begin to travel. And while this is happening, the apostle Peter now is there in this home of another man named Simon, all right? Another man named Peter, all right? And he um, goes up on the roof to pray and he gets this vision. So it says the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the six hours, about noon to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So it's three times. God's trying to get a word across, all right? And so this was a sheet full of all these unclean animals. Peter, as a good Jew, knew, I'm not supposed to eat that. And God says, no, 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 do not call that unclean. Not only is he talking about dietary laws, he's trying to tell him about a, a bigger picture about God's plan from the very beginning. So here the story continues, all right? Now, this is verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, 
who was called Peter was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation for I've sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And it tells us the next day he rose and he went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So we'll stop right there. We could keep reading. I encourage you to read the, the whole text, all right? But what is happening here is there's this moment now where Peter's had this vision, Cornelius has had this vision. These things are coming together. God is orchestrating this because God's plan from the very beginning is that there would be this new humanity, that there would be this oneness, there would be um, this unity that would exist amongst all the nations. They come under the rule and reign of their God, of their maker, all right? Now, just as a quick aside, one of the things I find fascinating here, all right, is it tells us in a few different occasions in this chapter that Peter, all right, they're in Joppa, all right? Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but if, you, if you're familiar with particular Old Testament stories, the, the, the city of Joppa is referred to. Maybe ask yourself this, like, huh, where have we seen this? Where have we heard of Joppa before? One of the key places is in the story in the book of Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? God tells Jonah, I need you to go to the Ninevites. I need you to go as a Jewish man, as a Jewish prophet to proclaim the word of God to these Gentiles. And what does Jonah do? Rather than setting out to Nineveh, it tells us in the scriptures, he goes down to Joppa to get on a boat uh, headed towards Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. So hundreds of years before this, you had a man of God, this prophet of God, this spokesperson for God that was faced with the decision in Joppa, all right, am I going to go to the Gentiles or am I going to flee and disobey what God says? And now here again, God is doing this same thing. He's like, I need you to go and give this word to the Gentiles. What will happen in Joppa now? Will Peter flee or will he go? Will he follow? And what we see as we continue reading here in Acts 10 is that Peter goes and he begins to proclaim to Cornelius and to his whole household. He's literally gathered all these friends and family like, you're supposed to give us a word. And Peter preaches the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. He, in fact, he even says these words when he arrives there in verses 34 to 35. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does, does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, we might look at that and say, oh, I kind of get that. I expect that. This was, I can't tell you how revolutionary, how loaded this statement was. The animosity that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles was palpable. It was ever-present. You could not get away from it. Even when a, good, when a Jewish person, if they were a good Jewish person, at least according to their customs, if they said the word Gentile, they would literally spit on the ground after they said it. Or if they heard it, they would spit, all right? Jewish midwives were not allowed to help or assist even in, in times of like trauma to deliver a Gentile baby because they didn't want any more scum being brought into this world. All right, I mean, so there's incredible animosity. It's not like, oh, look at the cute little baby. It's like spit, it's scum. I mean, that's how deep this division went. So when Peter shows up, this would have gone against everything that he had known, his upbringing, everything. And yet, what do we see? God shows no partiality. So I look at that and we see how chapter 10 concludes and they, they end up getting baptized, right? Because the, the, the Jewish leaders, these new Christians are like, well, 
they're professing faith, like repent and be baptized. They've repented. Let's, let's get on with this. Let's do it. And so it's this amazing scene. And so I look at that and I'm like, oh, cool, right? I might ask this question. So we're good, right? Like this has taken place. No more issues. Look at this. No partiality. But then we got to go to Galatians 2 because the reality is, is there's a propensity, not just for Peter, but for me, for you, for all of us that follow Jesus to forget, to forget how we've been accepted, to forget that God shows no partiality, to forget our calling to be agents of reconciliation. There can be fear that exists. There's all kinds of things. And so what we see is, let's jump back to Galatians chapter two now, is in verses 11 to 13, it tells us the problem, all right? This is why the apostle Paul had to confront the apostle Peter. So I'll read it again. It says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So just right there, this is aggressive language, right? I mean, Paul is up in Peter's face. Now, there's a couple of things I find encouraging here. For one, both are men of God, both are apostles, both are used in tremendous ways by God. But what we see here is no one's got this corner market on like they're the, the perfect representation of like living out the gospel, right? Peter had to be told three times in a vision, Hey, don't call anything unclean. Don't be partial. Don't be racist. Don't be prejudiced. It takes, it's like he's hard-hearted, right? And he's got a it's thick skull and eventually it gets through. But it doesn't even last because he shows up in Antioch and he's hanging out with the Gentiles. And then it tells us that some brothers from James, this means there's a group of people that were followers of Jesus, but they were saying, you still had to obey even if you weren't a Jew, you had to obey all the dietary laws. You had to get circumcised, all of these things. So that group shows up and it tells us what happened. It says, for before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And then it has implications too. It's kind of cascading effect. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So they follow Peter's lead. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In the ancient world, to have a meal with somebody was a sign of acceptance. It was a belonging. We're in this together. Imagine the joy that the Gentiles there in Antioch when the apostle Peter shows up and he's enjoying a meal with them and they're sitting around the table and it's this beautiful picture of God bringing people together from so many different backgrounds and walks of life and ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds. But then we realize, ah, the problem still exists. And I need to ask myself this, right? It's not just an ancient thing. It's not just, oh, that happened a couple thousand years ago. Like it continues to play out and it doesn't just play out in Peter's life and it doesn't just play out in the lives of all those people out there. It plays out in my heart and in my life and the calling is for all of us to examine because if we're not careful, we can do what Peter did here, move from this kind of revolutionary to retreating. Now, why would he do that? What is happening there? And this is where the apostle Paul says, I oppose him to his face. Like this is a big enough deal that he had to stop and call out this man. Speaking the truth in love, part of our calling as a church, part of even engaging in this series is for us to figure out like, what would this look like? These types of conversations are going to have to happen. We're not always gonna get it right, but it's worth speaking the truth in love. And that's what you see Paul doing. And what I want us to ask as we continue now, we see in verses 14 to 16, how the apostle Paul confronts them, or confronts Peter. 
and how we're confronted with this. Ask yourself, will you and I, will you allow the word to confront you? Because before you and I can see it as, oh, how can we oppose things? How can we oppose injustice and racism and prejudice and all this? And we might read ourselves in this story as Paul. Let's hit pause on that for a moment and see ourselves as Peter. Let's see ourselves as one who in some moments doesn't see any partiality, doesn't have any fear, is all on board with God's plan. And then also knowing that there's something still in the human heart, what would cause us to retreat. That if we don't pay attention to that, we will not be living as God would intend for us to live. And so now what's so fascinating here, look with me at verses 14 to 16. We get insight into what was going on in the mind of the apostle Paul as he opposed Peter, as he got up in his face and spoke the truth in love. Like what was running through his mind? What was the thing that he saw as the issue? And what did he actually call Peter to consider? There's this proclamation that takes place. So look with me at verses 14 to 16. I'll read these words again. Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Gentile, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves, he said, we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, and here's the key, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now look back with me at verse 14. This is such a key thing. Paul looks at this, all right? And he what we get inside of what's running through his mind. He observes their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The language here that's being used is this sort of, he's saying there's not this ortho walking, all right? It was the, kind of the word that would be used or would be translated here. Now you think ortho, right? Now have flashbacks. Maybe when you were in middle school and you went to that place called the orthodontist, right? Maybe you had to have that happen. Maybe this was your reality, right? You see this picture, it's like, oh yes, the days of braces. And you know, maybe you just had normal braces. Some of you had the whole headgear, all these things, right? Well, it's called orthodontist, why? Because it's meant to straighten, to bring into alignment. Your teeth should be in a particular way. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, when he observes what Peter is doing, how he is retreating from the Gentiles, when he's acting in a bigoted and a racist and a prejudiced way, he's saying, that is not in line. That is not ortho walking. There's this radical misalignment that is taking place. We are not walking in step. We are not aligned with the truth of the gospel. And so anytime this issue of race and injustice comes up and sometimes the natural reaction from the church, unfortunately, can be, hey, let's not make this this sort of social justice crusade. It's not the social gospel. Let's just keep it pure on the gospel. Look what Paul did. He went right to the gospel. He said, this is a massive gospel issue. There's all sorts of ways that we're not aligned with the truth of the gospel. So that's where we need to start. That's what happens. And now, let me ask you this. Do you notice what Paul didn't do? As he observes this, all right, it would have been so easy for him to call out and basically look at Peter and be like, Peter, you know better. Stop it. Knock it off. What are you doing? I love the way Tim Keller in his commentary on this talks about what is transpiring in these verses, about what Paul didn't necessarily do right from the, the get-go. He says, Paul's actual treatment of the sin is brilliant. He did not simply say to Peter, 
Repent of the sin of racism, you bigot. But rather, he said, repent of the sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by God through the costly sacrifice of Christ. Do you see the different approach there? Had Paul said, quit being a racist. Go have dinner with the Gentiles, Peter. What are you doing, you bigot, right? He, he wouldn't have been saying anything untrue. But for the apostle Paul, he knows there is something deeper that's going on. You might think it like at a branch level, think of a tree, right? At the branch of the fruit you're seeing, it's this bad fruit is racism, but there's a deeper rooted issue that's happening that leads to racism. And so Paul's like, yeah, hey, I wanna get rid of the racism. I wanna get rid of the prejudice. I wanna get rid of the injustice. I want there to be this fellowship where we're all together. But in order to get that, we gotta dig deeper. We gotta get at the root. We gotta go to a place where we don't tend to want to go. We like to just look at the surface and say, okay, let's just yell and scream for everybody. Stop the racist behavior. And in one level, that's right and true. And if that's all we can muster, let's say that. But the Christian story, Oh, the Christian story, the gospel story goes so much deeper. What the world has to offer is stop it, quit being bigoted, quit being racist. Yes and amen to all of that. But the Christian story gets at, okay, how is that actually possible? Like what's going on? What actually causes it? And so let's think about this image then, getting to the root. And the problem then, ultimately, what's going on at a root level, at a heart level, that manifests itself in racism is our tendency my tendency, your tendency, Peter's tendency, every person who's ever walked the face of the earth or will walk the face of the earth, the tendency toward self-justification. We're always looking, because we're so insecure, we're always looking to be justified. We want to look down our nose at other people. So what is racism? Even for Christians who have this welling up in their hearts, right? Like, where is that coming from? It's because you're not believing the gospel. You're not aligned with the gospel. There's a lack of belief that in Christ you are enough. And so you have to put other people down. You have to think that you are superior because of the color of your skin or your socioeconomic background or how hard you work or any number of things. In those moments, we're saying, yes, it's Jesus, but I need to also justify myself. And that produces racism amongst countless other sins. That's what's going on here. That's what's been happening all through history. And so the question for us becomes as the church, let's dig deeper. Let's examine what's going on. What Paul does for Peter is the same thing that I need. It's the same thing that you need. It's the same thing that your neighbor needs. It's what would actually bring healing. It's just like, guys, we are so disjointed. There's such a lack of alignment with the gospel. Can we understand the gospel? When we would, if we really rested in who we are in Christ, how could we ever, ever think of engaging in racist behavior and patterns and thinking we're better than somebody else? The tendency of the human heart is to always want to self-justify. And even in good attempts, like we see this too, right? Maybe even in our calling things out, saying that is wrong, but we can feel superior to those that we don't feel like maybe are as far along on this as we are. And what is that? Even in calling out the sin of racism, there can be self-justification because it's like, I need to be known as somebody that's standing up for this. And we want to be known in that, but not because we're trying to justify or earn anything, but because we are so thankful that God rescued me. 
Like God rescued me. How crazy is that? Like that should blow us away. Maybe you walk around thinking, ah, I don't know. Some people got some crazy cool testimonies. Mine's just kind of lame. It's like whatever. No, no, no. You were dead and you've been made alive. It doesn't get more dramatic than that. That's every single Christian story, like at a bottom line, all right? I love what Paul would write then just a few verses later, verse 20 of Galatians 2. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's like the old me was, is dead now. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now, I, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who what? who loved me and gave himself for me. You wanna see the church have an impact so that there would be reconciliation, so that there would be justice, so there would be flourishing, so that there would be shalom. It flows out of a group of people that have this confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence in what Paul just wrote, the God who loved me and who gave himself for me that you are loved and you're accepted in Christ. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Peter forgot that. Fear kicked in. What is it for you? What is it for me? Ask yourself that. Examine your heart. Where is there still fear? The more we embrace the gospel, the more we revel in it, the more we enjoy it, the more we proclaim it, the more we rest in it, the more we preach it to ourselves, the more we listen to it. In all of those things, God then is reminding us who we are in him and that allows us to follow Jesus into the places of deep brokenness, of injustice, and to not do it from a place of superiority or self-righteousness, but to say, I'm a broken sinner. And if God can use the apostle Peter, I mean, this wasn't the end of the story for Peter. Like you've got to love like the account, the narrative of Peter all through the Bible, right? Just keeps messing up over and over and over again. And God keeps saying, you're my guy. I'm gonna use you. Why? Because God loves to demonstrate his power, his strength and our weakness and our brokenness and our jacked upness. And how many times we fall flat on our face and God's like, all right, but I'm gonna keep using you. You are just an embodied, you're like, you're this broken vessel. You're this jar of clay, as Paul would talk about even in 2 Corinthians. Like, he's like, I wanna showcase my strength and let the light of the gospel shine forth. And so church, let me put just a few things before you. There's no way to just say, okay, um, here we go. I've got like three steps and then we're gonna eradicate racism and do that. But I would call us to keep in mind here what the apostle Paul does to think about, are we aligned with the gospel? Are we walking in step with the gospel? Are we resting in that? And then let that fuel these things. I'll put a few suggestions for us as the church. Things that I pray will continue for us as we think about what does participation look like, All right? And it was along these lines, how do we look, listen, learn, and love? So there's more that could be said. But I think these are some places that we visited through this series and we got to continue to go to. And so one, the first thing I would say, we got to look. Look and see your own particular culture. Look and see the color of, of your skin. Let's not operate with that. Oh, let's just be colorblind. No, no, God created the diversity. It's part of his beautiful design. But let's look, and let me put this before you, confront the myth of cultural neutrality. Particularly to if you're in the majority culture, if you're part of Cross Point Winter Park, all right, and your skin looks more like my skin, let's just realize, can we just acknowledge there is a white culture. If you don't believe there's a white culture, ask your friends of a different culture 
they, they will tell you. I've had friends tell me that very graciously. They've been very kind and like, oh yeah, yeah. Like there's just some things, the way that you do church, what you choose to include or not include. There's a whole culture that we have, even as how we seek to do church and ministry. Let's just be aware of that. I don't think it's something that we have to be ashamed of necessarily, but it is something to be aware of and to say, oh, what would it look like for us to to grow. So how do we continue to look, to see our culture, to see our preferences, particularly if you're in the majority culture, the things that, that we maybe don't even give a second thought to, that other people have to constantly live with, a, with an awareness, where things just always feel like not quite at home. So let's look. I would also put before you, let's listen. Proverbs 18 too, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion there's no lack of opinions right now, but there's a lack of listening. Open up, scroll through your social media feed, turn on the news, lots of opinions, and unfortunately, a lack of actually listening. Let us be empathetic. Let's pray that we would weep with those who weep. We would rejoice with those who rejoice, that we would seek to understand that we might, when tragedy strikes, rather than rushing forward with our opinions or our take on things, what if we just listened? And what if we asked people that look different than us, or have different backgrounds than us, like, how are you doing? How, how are you processing this? How is this impacting you? It's a call for us as the church. Certainly related to this is a call to continue to learn. My plan this week is to, if you think of it, go back to cpwp.life later this week. I wanna to put together just a list of some resources that I found helpful from films to watch, books to read, articles to read, some videos to watch. There's, we don't lack for information. None of us can walk around being like, man, if, if, if only I had some resources, then, then you know, I could get on board with it. No, no, they're all over the place. There's a call to enter in. Might we be a community that continues to listen and to learn? So we would look, we would see other cultures. We would seek to listen, to understand that we would learn together. And the ultimate calling, right? is that we would love one another, that we would love our brothers and sisters in the church and outside of the church. First John four nineteen says this, we love though because he first loved us. If you hear nothing else in this whole series, church, it's the call to continually be centered on the gospel. If we're enamored with the gospel, if it's transforming our, our hearts and our lives, what will take place is we will be the kinds of people that will love as we've been loved. That Jesus pursued us. He entered into this world. Talk about disruption. Talk about uncomfortable. Talk about like entering into something that was hard and painful. And he did it that you could be brought around the table, that he might have fellowship with you. He did it for the glory of the Father and for your joy and for my joy. Let us be a community that loves one another. And that is motivated, that it's fueled by our understanding of the gospel. Like God loves you right now, church. The scriptures tell us he is rejoicing over you with loud singing. He's not embarrassed by you. He doesn't hold your sin against you. Jesus paid for it all. It has been dealt with. It doesn't mean that there's not a calling now to continue to grow in our sanctification, but we have been justified. That's what Paul speaks of here in Galatians 2.16. He's like, we know that a person is not justified by works law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is what we celebrate. And so as I was thinking about how to conclude not only this sermon, but this series, I wanna close with something that, that spoke to me in the last, maybe a week and a half or so ago. I happened to watch this, this short film. 
Um, and it's a, a film that was put together uh, by a, a current day artist by, by the name of Makoto Fujimura, all right? And he's done work with Redeemer City to City up in the New York area, um, has his um, own, own studio um, in Princeton, New Jersey, just worth looking into, just does phenomenal work and his understanding of the gospel and how that even interrelates with, with art and how it speaks. It's just, just some great, great resources. And so he put together this, this short film, all right? And he put it together, uh, it was about this ancient Japanese practice called kintsugi, all right? And so you take that word and what I learned in watching this is kin means gold and sugi means to mend, to mend with gold. Now, this particular practice has been around in Japanese culture, apparently for, for a very, very long time, but there was a resurgence of it after 2011 or in 2011. Reason being, you may remember, I believe it was in March of 2011, that a massive earthquake hit Japan. It created a tsunami. Lots and lots of people died. Lots of people lost their homes. And so Makoto, he travels for part of this film, he travels to Japan. And he talks with a master kintsugi artist. And this man in Japanese, and I'm reading the subtitles, begins to explain what he seeks to do and how he mends with gold, but how even what he's doing and mending with gold, these, these pots and these pans, I'll, I'll put like a picture. This is what a finished product looks like. And he spoke of 2011 as people's lives were just shattered and there's all this brokenness. He said he had people bringing in just they're everyday items, these bowls that were wrecked in the earthquake. And they had the pieces, they had the, the, you know, just the broken pieces of it and they would bring it to this master artist and he would put it back together. That he would mend, but it wasn't just with glue or some sort of epoxy there, but rather part of what was used to mend is you would mend with gold. And what you end up with at the end is a far more value. It's this beautiful piece of art. And so again, there's a picture of what one of these finished bowls can look like. And Makoto, he spoke of this as he's reflecting on this art practice. He said this, Kintsugi, he says, reminds us that sometimes instead of throwing away things in the past, that it's good to work them in and do it beautifully. To me, the gospel reads that Christ came not just to fix, but to restore us to create something new, which is more valuable than what we began with. And as I listened to him speak those words, and I watched this master artist at work, the overall theme as I look out over the world and as you look out over the world, there is a brokenness. And it's not just a brokenness that's out there, it's a brokenness that's in here. I can't look out and say, well, there's a brokenness that all these other people have created, like I'm part of the problem and what do I do with these broken pieces? I'm reminded that we need a master artist that is Jesus, that will mend with gold, that will do more than simply repair to get it back, but will actually make something beautiful out of the mess, the mess that I created. If God can use the brokenness right, of this world and, and deal with it through the death of his son to bring about healing, he can bring about healing in all circumstances, in all situations, in all matters of injustice. He can deal with racism. This is not to say when Makoto spoke of like, hey, um, then th th this call to throw, you know, not throw away things of the past instead of throwing away, it doesn't mean that there aren't things in the past that we lament and we grieve and we repent of, but rather we look and say, okay, 
we can't just say, oh, let's forget about that. No, God is doing a work and he's going to use the broken pieces and he's going to mend with gold. So I heard that and I watched that. And it brings to mind Ephesians chapter three. We'll close with this. This is what God is doing. This is what God has always been doing. More times than I am even aware of, I'm sure I have contributed to the brokenness more than the healing. I'm continuing to learn what repentance looks like in that. This is not offered as let's go out there and be kintsugi artists that can do this. No, no, no. Like, I don't know how to do that. There's so much brokenness. It puts me in the spot of complete and utter dependence on the God of the universe, of Christ Jesus himself, who repairs, restores, and he makes something beautiful out of the brokenness. Ephesians chapter two, rather, I should say. Ephesians 2, 13 to 22, we'll close with this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Church, that's the story of the gospel. That is what the gospel does as it reconciles us to God and it reconciles relationships And God steps in as the master artist and he takes the broken pieces and he fashions something beautiful out of it. And church, my prayer for us is that we would be a people that would recognize our brokenness, that we would repent of the ways that we have been guilty in sins of commission and of omission, that we would continually run to the cross, we would repent when there isn't alignment with the gospel, that we would be willing to speak the truth in love when we see that in our fellow brothers and sisters, that the self-justification, that we would repent of that, we would know we're solely justified to the finished work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in that place, we too can be used to help bring shalom, to reweave, to use the broken pieces to mend and to play our part faithfully. So church, let me close us in prayer. We'll continue to worship and let's ask the Holy Spirit right now to lead us in confession. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to apply gospel comfort in our lives. And let's ask the Spirit to lead and guide that we might be a people that are committed to reconciliation, to justice, to this work of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. Thank you for your willingness to send your son into this brokenness. And Jesus, we thank you that you're putting things back together, that you are making something beautiful 
out of the mess of our lives, out of the mess of this world. Thank you that you have a plan. Thank you that sin has not thwarted that, that sin, um, Satan, evil hasn't had the final say. Thank you that there was this moment, God, where the enemy thought he had triumphed over you because of the cross and that that thing itself became the very symbol of victory and you've triumphed over Satan, sin and death. And Jesus, I thank you that we're part of that team, that movement, that work, and it's solely by your grace. And so would you empower us to live as the church that we wouldn't live from a place of feeling the need to self-justify, but we would know and we would rest in the fact that we've been justified the finished work of Jesus. And in light of that, would you make us agents of reconciliation, of peace, of shalom, and do your work in and through us. We pray we desperately need you. And God, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for our great joy. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's continue to worship.